0: Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family owned and operated mail order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is the end of March, the month that, as everyone knows, comes in like a limpkin and out like a Lammergeier. And we are indeed taking on this month like a bearded vulture takes on a delicious marrowy bone this time around. It is this month in birding, featuring a West-oriented panel of Mika Jimenez, Sarah Swanson, and Birdie Castalba. We talk Audubon names. Western and Eastern birds, Flacco, the Eagle Owl, yes, we do eventually get around to Flacco, and much, much more. Let's get into it, all after this week's rare birds.
1: This is your rare bird
0: focus for the end of March 2023. Florida continues to amaze. This week saw what might be the Sunshine State's fifth potential state first, and this one, like at least two of the previous birds, might be an ABA first as well. A bird strongly suggestive of a Eurasian spoonbill was photographed flying near Duck Key in the Florida Keys. That's Monroe County. The species is not, as it might seem at first, a completely unexpected vagrant to the ABA area. There are a number of Caribbean records, including multiple records from Barbados and singles from St. Lucia and Martinique, and even one from Greenland. I know, not the Caribbean, but still. The species is a ready vagrant in the old world and has been predicted to show up on continental North America for some time, though I suppose the Florida Keys are still not, strictly speaking, continental. That said, it's Florida, and the same providence concerns we talked about with the yellow-headed caracara last week cannot be completely dismissed. Also, better photos would help to conclusively rule out African spoonbill as well. And to Idaho, where that state's first record of tricolored blackbird was discovered in Payette County this week. This species is pretty much restricted to California and parts of Oregon and Washington, but it has come quite close to Idaho in the past, and Idaho birders have long expected one to turn up on the east side of the border. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA community. Spring is in the air, at least theoretically, across much of the ABA area. It is the last Thursday in March, and that means this month in birding, our monthly panel discussion, which, like clockwork, brings you the spiciest birding takes arriving at your doorstep like Purple Martins on the Gulf Coast. What a panel we have this month. West Coast birders take note. Let's uh, introduce you in alphabetical order. He's an aeroecologist at Colorado State University, and according to Connecticut Audubon, young, gifted, and wild about birds. Welcome back to Miko Jimenez. Hi, Miko. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. So much to talk about this month. It is. It is a busy month. Uh, And next, she is the author of the practical, pocket-sized, and beginner-friendly Best Little Book of Birds, The Oregon Coast. And uh, also from, as I just found out, like literally 10 minutes ago, from the soon-to-be-rechristened Portland Audubon. More on that later. It is Sarah Swanson. Hello, Sarah.
1: Hi, Nate. It's so nice to be back.
0: Absolutely. And also from the Pacific Coast, in one of those random scheduling coincidences, probably no more than five miles from Sarah. About uh, there. also from Portland Audubon, or knee Portland Audubon, however you wanted to say that now. It's Brody Castel, but welcome back, Brody.
2: Nate, I'm loving this left coast bias.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's about time. It's about time, honestly. Um, welcome to you all. Uh, I, have a, I have a theory about birding in March. Um, I think it is easily the most drama-filled month of the birding calendar, uh, largely because winter is stubbornly hanging on. Uh, in a lot of the continent, and people are sick and tired of it. And also, we are all sitting around waiting for the birds to return slowly, slowly, slowly. We're still, honestly, six weeks away from the really, really good stuff. Um, so everyone is a little anxious. Everyone is a little on edge. Month March always seems to be a very dramatic month. And uh, this, this month, March 2023, is no different. The big news, I suppose, let's, let's just jump right into it. Was the news that Audubon, National Audubon Society, the largest bird conservation organization on the continent, uh, has decided to retain their name, Audubon. We are in a period where we're sort of reevaluating a lot of the people we name things for uh, birds, organizations, colleges, anything that's named after a person. Uh, we're sort of reevaluating what we think about that. And Audubon has decided to retain the name of Audubon. Um, It was a controversial decision in some circles. We have talked a lot about bird names and names in general here um, on this podcast. It's been sort of a recurring theme. And I'm curious to hear what you all think about this non-change, the decision made here by the, the board of Audubon.
3: You know, I would feel weird about like talking about this publicly as a former national Audubon employee, but it's like all out there. Like it's, there's no tea I'm spilling here. Like for years now, it's been documented how leadership uh, communication, I guess, has been really deteriorating with staff and even externally. Um, And so like the refusal to change the name in a vacuum, you know, that wouldn't be great in itself. But Within this larger narrative, it's like clearly a symptom of a much bigger issue yes. um and like as an example of that, one of the things that th- one of the things that staff are actually like really up in arms about is that uh the leadership won't share data from the year long evaluation that led to this decision um mm-hmm. and so I don't know, like just reading the statement from national um you know there's some irony, I think, in them saying that like the name Audubon transcends transcends one person's name because I think at this point it's really a symbol of conservation kind of clinging to like outdated values. And it'd be one thing if that was benign, but it's causing board members to leave. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's causing people to question their loyalty to the organization. And I think most importantly, it's really harming the people that do the work at Audubon that we admire them for. Like a lot of people at Audubon have been very vocal Mm -hmm. about wanting to change the name. So I don't know, that's how I feel about it. I'll let uh, Brody and Sarah jump in with their thoughts
2: yeah well you know Sarah and i uh are both in portland we um we we didn't disclose that before because uh now <laughs> I think since we're in the same room we get to count this as a work meeting um, yeah. But <laughs> uh, yeah we um you know i'm I'm proud of the portland audubon uh board for making the name change in New York Audubon also just announced a couple of days ago that they're changing the name new york City audubon i should say i, I think that that Miko had it right that we're sort of at a, it feels like we're at a sort of generational crossroads here. And I think Mm, that mm -hmm. if we look at these, I mean, I think that all of these boards and, you know, even in Portland Audubon, it was a board decision. It was not a um, staff decision. I mean, we had our opinions, but, but we weren't the ones that made the decision. And I think all these boards had a really tough choice. Um, Not that the choice was tough, but that they knew that they were going to really upset a bunch of people with either choice. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's a terrible spot to be in. I do mm-hmm. think that mm-hmm. 10 to 15 years from now we'll look back and, um, and I think that Portland Audubon will be happy with their choice. You know, I also, I, I think for me, it's just been an interesting evolution because when the idea first came up a couple of years ago, um, I think I had the same thoughts as a lot of people about the uh, the recognizability of the name and all of that. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't until I talked to a colleague and she gave me a very different perspective that i realized that i was really looking at through my own lens and so uh at the risk of being um i don't want to sound condescending here but my message to other white men listening to this is your perspective i promise you has been heard and i would (laughs) i would really uh encourage you to listen do they have a
0: podcast
2: brody
1: (laughs) They probably do. They probably do. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Everyone has one by now. Yeah, but I, I just would encourage people to listen to the perspectives of of people who maybe uh, have differing views and maybe are you know especially people that do feel like they're not as welcome in the birding community mm-hmm. because that's really what this is all about. And and I think that um, National Audubon missed a missed a real opportunity. But I, I, like I said, I know it's a tough choice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree with with Brody and and Miko completely. I mean, I. Was uh, disappointed and maybe a little more surprised than other people were with uh, National's decision. I mean, if you read the material that they have on their own website about Audubon himself and uh, what he did and what he believed and the implications of that for the name of a society where you're trying to bring. As many people as possible into conservation efforts. I kind of thought it was a slam dunk to change it based on all of the information that they had. And, but then, of course, you know, I'm being too idealistic, which is something that sometimes happens to me. (laughs) And of course, it's a nationwide organization. And, you know, Portland Audubon was able to make this decision knowing that they would get some pushback but also right. that they're in portland and in oregon um mm-hmm. and that the majority of the feedback would probably be positive which i think it has been but national uh, had to reckon with a much larger audience and i am
3: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: still <laughs> disappointed i mean <laughs> there's there's just so much wrong uh with having this particular person's name and any white person's name white old white guy you know that it's something we should be moving away with with birds and with with organizations and it's just if we want conservation to be relevant if we want national audubon to be relevant it it needs to acknowledge the way that things are changing yeah. and you know they can try again later this isn't yeah, necessarily the mm-hmm. final decision
0: yeah and i, I should Clarify also that this is uh, you know, these are just my opinions, not the opinions of the American Birding Association, though I do have this uh, platform as, as a staff member of the American Birding Association. and they're not the, uh, not the opinions of the people anyone in the ABA as well. You know, When the organization was founded over a 100 years ago, you know we had not had any sort of that reevaluation of who these people were and what they were, and he was just the guy that wrote a book that everyone knew. And had we had, if we were able to make that decision again with the with hindsight, I, I have to think that the people who who even named the organization probably would not have have done so. They probably would have named it after Alexander Wilson, which is another issue, but a slightly better uh, <laughs> historical ornithological figure. Right. Um, yep. And I, I agree. I agree with all of you that the issue here is essentially comes down to the lack of trust between the leadership of Audubon and the rank and file staff members who are actually doing the work that we admire Audubon for, as you said, Miko. And Mm -hmm. I think that there is a way that you possibly could have kept the name if that is really important to the organization, if they feel that for branding or marketing or or equity purposes, that that is an important equity in terms of like building value over time, not in terms of uh, equity, social justice equity. But I think you can maybe make that argument, but it has to be done a lot more with a lot more consideration than it has been done. Um, it, it has felt like this this decision was made like with absolutely zero input, though they claim that there is some input. And if you are going to keep the name and you're going to, you know, make that a priority, then you're gonna have to walk the walk. Uh you're gonna have to invest in ways that are, you know, meaningful to the communities you are trying to to reach. We've seen Audubon have a lot of issues with that over the last couple of years. Um, uh, very public issues. And um, it doesn't look like they're, they're willing to completely go all the way in um, to what, it would, what they would need to do, I think, to, to keep the name as it is. I don't know. We'll see. As you say, 10, 15 years down the line, this may look like a bad decision and they may end up, may end up changing it. I don't think this conversation is going away, um, though they may want this to be the final word on it. It's, it's going to be a thing that people are going to be talking about for a long time if we want conservation to be a, a thing that we, we care about and we grow the community of advocates for it.
2: Agreed.
1: Yeah, we're going to jump into a kind of dense, um, y topic here.
0: That's why I gave it to you.
1: Yeah, so uh, I had to take myself back 20 years to my time in zoology graduate school where I used to actually read and understand papers like this <laughs> on a on a regular basis. <laughs> but um, so yeah, this paper uh, is called Decoupled Spatio-Temporal Patterns of Avian Taxonomic and Functional Diversity. Ooh. And wow. I can see why... Nate sent us the science daily version of this (laughs) because woo, it is a doozy. So um, they looked at 600 uh, North American bird species um, and this paper, I believe used 11,000 hours on the supercomputer there at uh, the Ohio State University. (laughs) So um, basically this paper took a, bunch of the awesome eBird data that exists on uh, bird abundance across time and space for those 600 species. And then um, to look at functional diversity, which is uh, kind of the role that the bird plays in an ecosystem. Um, They looked at um, some characteristics like body mass, uh, what kind of diet each species had and their foraging, niche as far as uh, near water or the ground or up in trees and uh, whether they're active at night or during the day. So, um, and then they brought in this element of time and seasonality. So they found differences between the eastern and western continental US when it came to the timing of the greatest taxonomic diversity and uh, the greatest functional diversity. So in the west the <coughs> excuse me the species diversity or taxonomic diversity and functional richness are both the highest during the breeding season when all of the migrants are around. But they found the opposite in the east where the functional diversity is actually lowest when the species richness is high in the breeding season. So, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: one one more time. In the West, (laughs) when all of the migrant birds show up, the functional richness increases. Whereas in the East, the functional diversity actually goes down when all of those migrants show up in the breeding season. Hmm. And at the end of this, I want to talk about why we think that that might be from our experience as birders on both the West and East Coast. I was
0: just going to say, is this intuitive to birders and where so, you are? I don't have a lot of experience in the West, so I couldn't
1: tell. I mean, yes, I think right. so. I, I have some thoughts, but <laughs> basically... Scientists
0: finding things that we know to be true.
1: That's, Very good. Hey, yeah. stop stealing my... Con- <laughs> my conclusion <laughs> Sorry. My bike, yeah. it, it, it. so when i looked at the actual paper it's uh quickly gets away from anything that you would recognize about actual birds um it's <laughs> a lot seems of to be the case. uh they made kind of an interesting map which is like 10 layers deep till you get to actual birds but um Basically, they looked for areas that had similar patterns of species richness and functional diversity and colored those the same color. And so Mm -hmm. they had like seven different colors on the map. And in the east, these clusters are really big, showing that the patterns are kind of the same across a large amount of the landscape. Mm -hmm. But in the west, these cluster colors are like really small. And uh, packed together, like in Western Oregon, there's like five different ones just where we are. And so I think that this difference would make it really hard to compare the East versus the West. Because if the East is doing like one thing mostly or maybe like one other thing down in Florida and then like something else for most of the East, but then the West is doing like eight different things over a small range because of all of the you know terrain and climatic diversity that we have out here. um It seems like a weird comparison to just make East versus West, mm-hmm. yeah, but um basically, their conclusion is that. Um, hey, time is really important to consider when you're doing biodiversity analysis. So they, I, th- I think that they used big data to confirm what birders and ornithologists already knew, which is that the bird communities and the eastern, in the, in the eastern and western U.S. have really different seasonal dynamics due to the differences in climate mm-hmm. and geology and then the resulting ecosystems that exist there. But I think that this paper is actually aimed more at scientists that are studying biodiversity using these big data methods and just kind of reinforcing that idea that seasonality is a really important aspect of biodiversity and that you can't really separate those things. But I wanna hear what you guys think about uh, why the functional diversity of Eastern bird communities gets lower when all of the migrants show up is it because you guys have like 40 kinds of warblers that all do the Could same be. thing yeah i don't know pretty
0: much i mean we, we do have a lot of birds that do the same thing and are found in the same place and also you know as you say the the broad swaths of of habitat that are more or less contiguous or mm-hmm. very very similar uh, or at least the the differences are extremely subtle um is is very much a characteristic of birding in the east like um I I I could bird here in my backyard, and I could go 500 miles away up into um, Ohio, and I would see—I'd say 85 to 90 percent of the species list that I would get would be almost identical. Wow! And that's and that's not the case in the West at all.
1: No, I went to Bend for the weekend, which is like I don't know, 120, 150 miles away, and mm-hmm. saw a ton of birds that i would never see in portland
2: yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, that's what i found confusing about this uh paper was the idea i mean so i was looking at ecoregion maps which i find fascinating mm-hmm. yeah. and you know the two states with the highest ecoregion diversity are anyone want to guess
0: it's probably california
2: yeah california and alaska yeah
0: mm-hmm. and then
2: oregon and washington you know round out probably the top six or seven and the that. lowest ecoregion diversity is in the East. And so I was confused as to why, in the breeding season, there would be more functional diversity in the East. Uh, to me, that was a little bit counter. No, it's the opposite. Sorry. In, yeah, in the winter, there would be more. Because, you know, I grew up yeah. in West Virginia and, like, it's just for as far as you can drive in the winter, it's just leafless deciduous trees I and mean, i guess if you get up in the mountains you get some conifers but um, that was surprising to me but then i hearkened back to birding you know in the sagebrush steppe on the east side of the mountains in oregon in the winter and you can drive for 50 miles and you will see two ravens and that is it. so i don't know <laughs> yeah. maybe that's what's going on
3: yeah i mean that was kind of my first reaction like I moved from the East coast like over just over a year ago. And so I was trying to like rationalize this in my head. And at first it, it was very counterintuitive. Um, I think reading some of the discussion from this paper was helpful in like, like uh, they, they make the point that essentially there's like more specialization in the West or like, yeah. there's a lot more mm-hmm. like you know habitat specialists, which like, mm-hmm. is kind of what we've already been getting at. And they use hummingbirds as an example, right? Like the Ruby throating hummingbird being occurring, like, across the East as like one of the more generalist species. And then we have all these like diversity of hummingbirds in the West. So like when I started thinking about that, that kind of rings true. And then also, I don't know if this is true across the whole West, but like at least here in Colorado, it just feels like we have less resident species. Like generally, I don't like, I guess that's a very quantifiable thing, but um, it feels Mm -hmm. that way. Like it, it, you know, as a birder, it feels that way coming from the East coast.
0: Say in the East, we have um, more species, but they're all the same species. In the West, yeah. you have you know lots of different habitats with lots of different species, but you might not have as many of those species hmm. so it makes sense, yeah maybe like taken over the the whole of the continent or of a very large area, you know the number of species might be somewhat similar, but um, they're going to be in like really tight little partitions in the West because of the altitude and the elevation. And that's not the I mean, there's a little bit of case in the, in the Southern Appalachians where I live. Sure. I mean, I can see it. I mean, there are birds that are up above 5,000 feet and there are birds that are down below 1,500 feet and they do not interact. But that's yeah. a very crude way of looking at it compared to, you know, out in the West when you've got so much, so much gradient.
1: Yeah. So maybe it is driven by those larger climatic gradients in the West um and mm-hmm. just the w- m- most of which are filled by migrant birds because a lot of that area is uh, not fun in the winter um yeah. so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then yeah when you get a bunch of specialized birds that show up for the breeding season then that would drive the functional diversity
0: yeah exactly
1: yeah that makes sense okay we solved it yeah. good job everybody we brought some natural history into this paper
3: I, t- I thought h- hard about how to frame this, um, and I s- wanted to start broad. Um, Illinois was once home to about 22 million acres of tall grass prairie, and today that's less than, we're down to less than 3,000 acres. Um, and one of those patches was bellbow prairie, um, or I guess is bellbow prairie. Um, and even among those rare patches of remnant prairie, uh, bellbow was really special. So it was a dry gravel prairie with really, I guess, particular and like unique soil composition. And that was the product of like literally thousands of years of uh, glacial, topographic, and climactic processes, um, and so because it was so unique, it was home to a, a incredible diversity uh, of, of you know wildlife and plants. A number of rare native plants lived there, as well as wildlife, including the uh, endangered rusty patched bumblebee. Um, for these, for the listeners of this podcast in particular, it was home to a lot of uh, uh, grassland birds, things like uh, loggerhead shrikes, bobolinks, vireo. Um, and in one decision, basically the Rockford, Chicago Rockford international airport, um, kind of wiped out all away. So on March 9th, construction, um, was officially started to plow Belbo Prairie to make a way for an additional road for the Chicago Rockford international airport. Um, and this was after, you know, over a year and actually more than that of kind of legal battles and, uh, kind of a lot of. I don't know, a lot of uh, legal fights to make it s- to stop this uh, process. And so, yeah, I kind of, like I said, I thought really carefully about how to try to frame this. Um, and I think there, we, you know, we could possibly go into all of those details of that legal battle. and uh, But I'd rather not, and I'd rather take it more broad and just think about, um, I guess, just how our values dictate how we use land. And this shows up in conservation very explicitly, uh, but it also shows up in a lot of other, you know, parts of our life. Um, And I thought that this was a, you know, this isn't a new idea. I I think we can all agree that values dictate how we use land. But I thought that this was an example where we showed, we saw a lot of the details of that. Like, I want to, uh, make the point that this was all done legally. Like this was cleared by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, cleared by the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Um, and so those values showed up in our legal process. They showed up in who had the power to make these decisions, who had the power to stop it and who didn't. Um, and I've been dwelling on that, I guess, since you know this news came out. It's hard to rationalize and it makes it a lot more frustrating. You know, tall Tallgrass prairie holds a really special place in my heart because Illinois is home for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just wanted to take this opportunity, I guess, to kind of think really carefully about that. Um, and also to thank all the people who fought this for more than just the past year, this legal battle in some ways goes back to like the 1960s. Um, and I just want to, you know, yeah, highlight all those people who have helped organize. Um, not all of that prairie is gone by the way, like a good chunk of it is, which is a bummer, but a portion of it will still be there. And so Yeah. And I just want to say, if you've been feeling powerless and grief stricken over it, uh, you're not alone. I've definitely been feeling that. And it it really sucks.
0: I think that was one of the most frustrating things about it was that it felt so unnecessary too. like there was already a road that existed that did more or less the same thing that this new road did. And I I have a hard time figuring out exactly the justification for a new road when there's an old road there. Um, But as you say, it's about it's about values and you know, obviously the values that would have protected this prairie were not, um, were not considered when, um, when the permits were, were assigned and the, and the bulldozers rolled in. So,
3: yeah.
2: Yeah. I think what's a challenge about this is that, you know, the general public, uh, is going to have a hard time understanding all of the nuance that goes into the importance of something like a single bumblebee species or Mm -hmm. a complex, uh, ecosystem like, that type of prairie that uh, yeah less than one one hundredth of one percent remains, I think in mm-hmm. illinois that's right yeah and and so you you have these systems where and I know this is a bird podcast, not a politics podcast, but <laughs> you, you have these systems where really the mechanism should be that we listen to the input of experts, um, and yet it feels like at times state agencies and our you know federal agencies, and I won't mention any because um, you know these are because uh, I work for portland audubon but these (laughs) you know a lot of these agencies seem to (laughs) be siding with industry um as opposed to the scientific experts that are out there because we have a system you know political system that that allows nearly limitless money to get pumped into it and so i I think we're reaching this point where there's just not very much of this stuff left and the competition to conserve these resources versus develop them is getting stronger and stronger as we mm-hmm. run out of you know suitable places to conserve and suitable places mm-hmm. to develop, um, and yeah, it really makes me hope that we can get to a system that does prioritize uh, expertise as opposed to you know uh, money influence. Because that that uh, it's hard for me to say. I don't I don't know all of the background that went into this decision in Bell Bowl, but it seems like we're at the point where we need to be conserving all of the last good habitat. Uh, that we have, particularly these really threatened grassland habitats. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a shifting baseline thing where we Mm -hmm. can't just look out there and see all the stuff that's missing. And so it's hard to really wrap our heads around how much has been lost and how important these tiny remaining pieces are. I mean, we have the same issue with old growth. Forest here in Oregon, where the mm-hmm. former expanse of it was just unimaginably large. And now we're down to these little pieces that still, as Brody said, face pressure. And we still haven't decided, like, oh, shoot, we have lost way too much of this. Everything that's left needs to be protected. And it's hard. As someone who kind of understands more about, you know, the the conservation importance of small pieces of prairie and, and patches of old growth forest, you know, why wouldn't the rest of it just be sacred? Um, mm-hmm. But I think part of it is that the people alive now can't even imagine how yeah. much of this there used to was. be. And we yeah. don't quite understand how special these little bits are.
0: I'm somewhat heartened. I suppose, to turn this mm-hmm. a little bit by the, by the growth of birding in the last decade, last five years, yeah. because I, yeah. I, at, its, at its core, this is a community of people who enjoy talking about birds, learning about birds, mm-hmm. going out and seeing birds. And that's wonderful because I enjoy that too. And I like having more people in that community. But I, you know, I think the, the long-term view, what we all sort of want out of this is more advocates, more people that can stand up and say, you know, this isn't right. We're not going to allow this. And hopefully, you know, maybe you get people who find their way into nature study or birding, uh, who are in these positions to actually make outsized influence on these decisions. What could you have done if you had had, uh, a birder or a naturalist in that Mm -hmm. position to say, Hey, Hey, hold up. Let's take a closer look at this stuff instead of just, you know, rubber stamping it all the way through. Um, it it's a long it's a long journey to get the people we need. Um, regardless of what the you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says, I'm not sure that there are 45 million odd birders uh, in the U.S., but it's growing. There are more of us. It's a shame that we're sort of at this situation where we can't really afford to lose too much more. At the same time, that we're growing this group of advocates that can, you know, be allies in this in this fight. But um, you know, you got to take what you can get, and every little bit, as you say um needs to be protected. And the more people we have to kind of protect those little bits, um, I, I got I to gotta believe because I try not to be a cynical person. I got to believe that that stuff's going to pay off at some point. Um, if for no other reason, then you've got someone that values this on a personal level, even if it's not on a you know, societal level
2: yeah i think marbled merlits are a great example i think very few non-birders have ever heard of a marbled merlet, and birders in mm-hmm. oregon are like i want to go see this bird and then they learn oh it nests in old growth forests and it's like oh we cut down most of the old growth forests yes. you know right. uh, i mean that's a very clear yeah uh, entry point bird for people to understand the importance of these uh, ecosystems mm-hmm.
3: and like that's what we need we need like conservation i
2: feel like you know
3: we need more conservation scientists but really we need like everyday people to just instill Mm -hmm. these understand those connections and instill those values like i've been really big you know obviously i value the science i'm a scientist i but like what gets me really excited is when people in other occupations or other fields like see the value in this and i i mean to your point nate i definitely will agree um more people reached out when uh, or just like would ask me about like you know they saw the news about Belleville Prairie and they had questions about like, what does that mean for the birds? Cause a lot of my friends know me as like a bird person, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily like a prairie or person or a conservation biologist. And so I do think more people are making those connections and that's a pretty cool thing to see. It's, it's really exciting in digging through a lot of the news on this. One of the more heartening things is that they are planning some trans, like some soil transplanting uh, process or like measures. And so they're, literally taking the soil from that uh prairie and hoping to you know use it in other restoration uh like applications and so uh, there's can't be a better metaphor for like hopefully that that works out (laughs) and that like um you know is successful i guess
0: prairie especially tall grass prairie in the eastern part of the great plains is such an underappreciated habitat just in general um because it's 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 not dramatic like a forest is, like an old growth forest perhaps is, but it's um, yeah. so critical and there's so little of it left. Any news is good news, I guess, when we're talking about trying to trying to protect the plants, if not the actual location where the plants were before.
2: Yeah. So there's a cool new paper out in Ornithological Studies. Uh, that details uh, multiple ways that researchers and research from Latin America are systematically excluded in ornithology, uh, despite, as we all know, that region having the most birds of any region on earth. And this paper was signed by 124 different ornithologists. Uh, and it it really highlighted, I think, something that a lot of us may have intuitively known, but it it got into some details. So uh, for instance latin america has roughly the same population of europe uh, and yet in a recent special publication on the region in a global journal uh, only 3 out of the 10 papers on uh, the birds of that region had a researcher that was from or lives in the region so you can imagine how different that would have been if the special feature was on say the birds of europe or the birds of north america um, which as a side note, North America does include a Latin American country. Always feel uh, the need to point that out when you look (laughs) at all of our field guides. Depending on how
0: you um, define North America.
2: Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, So uh, the paper, it it identified, it went into these different mechanisms. So it identified these three mechanisms that led to this sort of colonial behavior. um, And these uh, include more obvious things like um, language hegemony, basically, the dominance of English. Um, it also looked at maybe less obvious things like publication costs that are barriers to uh, research being published, and also I think the most interesting one to me was the idea, the sort of biased ideas of what is novel in research. Mm, mm-hmm, so that really mm-hmm. shows how the people that are selecting the papers for these journals um, have these biases, and that really uh, leads to this sort of gatekeeping, right? And that, that shows a, a much more clear way in which these biases um, affect the science that we are all seeing and uh, hearing about. And so the paper gets into that too. It talks about how this directly harms science because of the idea that scientific rigor, uh, and I'd love to hear Miko's uh, opinions on this, but scientific rigor is only achieved when there is a diversity of voices because without that diversity of voices, we arrive at really biased ideas in ornithology, specifically of things like sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I think a lot of us are probably familiar with something that was highlighted by the Female Birdsong Project, which is a yep. cool project where you know it was just sort of accepted as uh, gospel that uh, males sing. And so, until very recently, you know, eBird um, in their breeding codes. You could only select singing male. You couldn't select oh, really? singing bird or singing female. And I think, mm-hmm. to their defense, they were using codes from the North American um, Breeding Bird Atlas or USGS or I can't remember. You might know better than, than me, Nate. Um, but so, th- so they okay. were using the codes that were given to them, and they've since yep. changed that. But that you know reflects this bias uh, in temperate northern regions. Predominantly, our males sing. We do actually have some females that sing that we've pretty much ignored because of that bias. And we've ignored the really, the really complex stories of why some songbirds like Canyon wrens might actually learn a uh, females might learn a song, whereas other female singing Northern birds have uh, innate song anyways. So this is just this example of how this bias really affects our scientific understanding of, in this case, birds. And, uh, I, I personally, I really like, I think that this is a growing field in science, the turning the investigation back on the investigators. Um, And I think it's a great, uh, it's a, a long overdue trend because we think of science as this really impartial empirical pursuit. Uh, and in the process, we ignore what are very natural human biases. I mean, every human has lots of biases and if we actually want to be impartial scientists, then we need to identify those biases and correct for them. And uh, which the paper talks about too. Some of the ideas about how to um, increase the diversity of voices, particularly from Latin America, uh, and really the the main you know, overarching theme of that is is the interest in diversifying the voices, uh, identifying mm-hmm. the problem, and, and at least making that a priority for scientific research. That. There is a direct scientific value to uh, an increased diversity in voices. So pretty interesting paper. I think it was really well done. Um, There's some, you know, I I would encourage people to read the whole, uh, the whole, at least the whole summary of it that's out in some other uh, publications because um, it goes into more detail that I think is just fascinating stuff.
0: Yeah. My my first thought is, you know, social media for all of its very obvious faults has been Absolutely influential in getting people, getting people's voices who may have historically been underappreciated, getting them in front of people who are able to make decisions to appreciate them more. And that, I don't mean to sound so paternalistic on that, but, um, it encourages collaboration in ways that were not possible before because of either um, active bias or inactive bias, and it's been so fascinating to watch birders from Latin America and ornithologists from Latin America, like basically just come into their own uh, in the last decade, last fifteen years, as you know, basically saying like, look, we've been doing this stuff for forever. <laughs> Let's collaborate and get this stuff out there. As you say, there's, there's a lot of birds down there. There's a lot of knowledge down there that needs to be appreciated. No, it's just nice to see people, you know, take their space, I guess, um, when the space is there to be taken.
1: One thing that's interesting about this paper is that it's actually a response to another Mm -hmm. paper that was, I think, uh, part of a a special uh, issue looking at uh, tropical ornithology since Ted Parker. Mm -hmm. And... Um, after reading this article and all of the different points that they make about the issues that uh, folks in the global south face when it comes to scientific research and publication, it makes me think: well, maybe there's another Ted Parker down there, you oh, know, in the global south, or yeah. or several, or a lot. You know, <laughs> I mean, Ted Parker was obviously made huge contributions to mm-hmm. tropical ornithology, and I don't want to discount that at all. Um, but maybe there are other people with the, you know, also amazing talent and insight that are not getting a chance to have that same impact. And I think that that's kind of what this paper is getting at. It's like, what are those barriers that are, are keeping there from being a, a Ted Parker that's, you know, based in Columbia and yeah. not, um, doing no offense to Ted Parker, um, but you know, parachute science.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah doing, yeah. doing local science.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, this shows up all the time for me, uh, just like in terms of studying bird migration, right? Like, and Mm -hmm. thinking about the full annual cycle of a bird. Like, we Mm -hmm. literally cannot protect of the vast majority of North American birds without thinking about their wintering habitat. Um, And I thought a really good point that got made in this paper was um so often north american ornithologists have the benefit of having like basic biology of their systems described you know like the pile guide is something to point to or the Mm -hmm. birds of the world or the breeding bird survey whereas a lot of neotropical systems are really were were those first we're in those first steps of just describing them and um, they pointed out this uh criticism that of those studies that often gets put out there of those studies being too locally focused. Um, And so there's this false perception in North America, right, that like we've moved past descriptive uh, science, or I Um, I don't know uh how to phrase it exactly. But um, in these systems, we just haven't and like they're, it's so crucial. We, we, it's so funny in like talking about conserving migratory birds in North America, we talk all the time about full annual cycles, but we like, what does mm-hmm. that really mean in, in terms of research and like in terms of what we want to fund? And, um, I think that's a really important point made by this paper.
0: And we're talking about full annual cycles of birds that breed predominantly in Northern North America or English speaking North America too. Well, for English and French speaking, I don't want to forget our friends in sure. Canada, yeah, but, yeah. um, but, uh, these birds that are, we thought for decades, centuries even, that had, you know, did not migrate, did not molt in the same way or molted like North American birds or did all the things yep. like North American birds because that was the standard. You know, they were, you know, the birds in, in the tropics uh, in South America are doing things that are completely different. And we have we had no idea because we just assumed they did the same thing. They did things the same way that birds that we're more, perhaps more familiar with. Yeah. Yeah we just ignored a lot of that science or the that those observational that observational data because of that. And as you say Miko, we're we're at ground zero or very close to ground zero on some of these species in the most biodiverse one of the most biodiverse places on the planet and that is both fascinating to me and you know worrying in the sense that we're losing these places sometimes faster than we can even document them. It's it's the same as the birders. We need more birders to help be allies. We need more ornithologists to be allies uh, doing this data, doing this work. And um, if we're pulling from a already small field, then we're not able to do the work that needs to be done.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And by encouraging more of this work to be done, um, you know, in the places where the birds are being studied, the, you know, the ornithology professor that's inspiring the next generation and creating. Exactly.
0: You're yeah. creating yeah. an infrastructure. Yeah.
3: I had yeah. a like, even on those really common species. Um, I have a really fun anecdote on this. Like, I, I interviewed uh Kristen Mancuso, who was did her PhD, I think, uh, I think the at the University of British Columbia, I can't remember it, where exactly, but shout out to Kristen Mancuso, she tracked catbirds and uh, and yellow breasted ch- uh, yeah, and and chats. Um, and Um, she had this really great anecdote about how she was, she was working with collaborators. Um, I forget which country, but somewhere in the neotropics and, um, it was Mexico. Uh, so I guess this is still North America, but um, regardless, like she was uh, tracking them and she was working with her collaborators and they were describing the behavior of uh, of the birds in their wintering habitat. And um, she said like, it was so funny when they were comparing notes on behavior because it was completely different behavior. Yeah. Like uh, in the yeah. wintering habitat, they were all like skulky and wouldn't like move out of their, you know, these shrubby areas. And then cat birds, obviously we all know are like, yes, in shrubby areas or like, you know, well-vegetated areas, but like super in your face sometimes and like very Mm -hmm. loud and very, you know, apparent and like even these really common species that we know well, like um, there's like bits about their biology that are just different across their full cycle and so if we don't know those things, we can't you know, protect them. Yeah. Oh, it
0: was only relatively recently that we knew that like wood thrushes keep territories and the wintering grounds just like they do in their breeding grounds, like People just assume yeah. they wandered around with migrating flocks because they just assumed that maybe one guy saw them with a migrating flock and didn't realize <laughs> it. And, yeah. you know, there, there's countless species that are like that, um, that we don't know what even they're doing. We, we think we know them, but we don't know what's going on. And we need people to help figure that out. Let's, uh, all right, let's do the, let's do it. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I've been trying to sort of avoid this story uh, for a long time, uh, but as it has uh, become a somewhat major media event, at least in in New York, which is we, all we all know is the center of the media universe, um, I feel like we cannot avoid it any longer. It is a case of birding news that has expanded beyond its boundaries and is now uh, invasive in uh, in popular culture. And by that, I am talking about, of course, Flacco. The escaped Eurasian eagle owl that someone broke into his cage and he escaped out of the uh, Central Park Zoo in Central Park, New York City, was wandering around the park. Um, there were several attempts to capture him by zoo officials uh, that were unsuccessful. And after a while, uh, Flacco, they just decided to let Flacco kind of do his thing in Central Park. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of lot of opinions, a lot of heat uh, about a lot this of heat. topic i I was in favor of the zoo actually recapturing Flacco because I think it's safer for him to be in uh, in an enclosure, though, but uh you know, I realized that I may be uh, somewhat uh, alone on that island. Uh but I'm I'm curious what you think about Flacco. Flacco got covered by Seth Myers um the other day. Flacco has been in all the major newspapers. Flacco is something of a minor celebrity in Central Park. He's followed around by photographers and looky loos and all sorts of people who want to catch a glimpse of the Eurasian Eagle Owl uh in Central Park. It is it is quite the deal. What are y'all's opinions on Flacco?
2: Well, I I'll just jump in and say that. Yeah, I I um I mean, you know that it is broken through when you start hearing about it from your non-birding family members and friends, right? right? And, uh, even this far away from Central Park. Um, and, and I did, I, you know, I followed it a lot on Twitter too. I just find, I do find the whole thing kind of fascinating. And I will say that I'm heading (laughs) out to, uh, Manhattan next month and I am thinking about maybe trying to go and pay Flacco a visit. Um, (laughs) following on twitter i i feel like i definitely kind of fell into my own camp you know twitter is i mean everything on twitter is an argument right and yes, so that's great it's I kind created of for initially arguments. right yeah um and it prioritizes that obviously <laughs> that's and, exactly right And i kind of fell into my birder camp but i was also a little bit uncomfortable with that kind of the more i thought about it hmm. um because i think in one way there's just an undeniable sort of heartstring tug I've seen this bird that's been captive for 12 years in this small enclosure going out and presumably living his best life. I mean, he teaches himself how to hunt. He gains a bunch of weight. I mean, one thing is we might want to think about changing the name, maybe Gordo, <laughs>
0: it's Flaco right. Gordo, Flacon, perhaps. I uh, like Flacon.
2: Yeah. Um, and, and, but, uh, you know, I, I think the other thing too is um, I think that we have a real opportunity with with Flacco, and there's a risk with Flacco. And you know, anytime that we have this bird that breaks through into mainstream consciousness, it's it's more people looking at and thinking about birds. And just like you were saying, Nate, yeah. more attention. And so you have these people that maybe haven't really thought about birds before and are really interested in Flacco. And I think the risk is that if you know we come to these people saying, you know, we're birders and we want people to, to care about birds, but not like that. Uh <laughs> you know <laughs> You're, know, you're doing it yeah, wrong. You're, you're, then you're then these people. My cool heart, Brody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. these people are not going to want to be birders, right? They're not going to say, that's "Well, fair. that's a group of people that's I want to join," right? But if like, we encourage that interest in birds and, and encourage, uh, th- then that's a that's a pathway to say, "Yeah, Flacco has a lot of serious threats to his health." You know, he rodenticide, cars, windows, um, you know, I don't know, cats, like who knows, all sorts of stuff. Yes. He is also a non-native species in a sensitive ecosystem, but that's a pretty niche point that I think people Mm. are going to take a little bit of warming up to, to really understand. And I think that, you know, the opportunity here for us is to, is to, is to seize on that interest in birds and say, yeah, look at all the other owls of central park. Like why are owls maybe somewhat underrepresented in central park, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's because Mm. of all these threats. And um, so you know, I teach classes about owls and, and I intend to kind of talk about Flacco and, and I think that that's my, my take on it is, it is it it's an opportunity and, and I, I hope that we don't squander it by pointing out the accurate observation that Flacco should not be in that park and is not necessarily safe uh, in that park.
0: It's interesting you mentioned cats, Brody, because I was, it reminded me of a uh, similar situation about uh, three, four years ago uh, where a Eurasian eagle owl at the Minneapolis Zoo escaped and was seen flying around the park where the Minneapolis zoo is. And there was actually a photograph of the Eurasian Eagle owl. I forget its name. that had captured a feral cat and was eating a feral cat on the roof of a house. So, you know, maybe the feral cats need to watch out for Flacco.
2: Well, that's true. Yeah. I know. I mean, you know, your Asian eagle owls are huge. They're uh, massive owls. birds. <laughs> so, so, but, but you could still see an instance where it, it tries, it sees a cat yeah. as prey oh, yeah. and gets injured. Oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. you take yeah. a shot to happens. the eye and you're yeah. out of luck as an owl.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd agree with a lot of what, I don't know what you both said. Um, you know, I've always been like aware of owl viewing ethics. I think most birders are of like, mm-hmm. you know, that it can be a contentious thing. I, and then you do, in, and York. then you go to New York and like you get yeah. in, integrated into that birding scene and you're like, yeah. it's a whole other level because there's the, the public is just so, so many people. Yeah. There's so many people. Yeah. If you, you know, if you throw up the location of an owl on Twitter, like you can expect like 30, 40 more than that pe- people will mm-hmm. be there with their cameras. And so it's a different level. I do. Yeah. I do see the point of like the messaging can't be too you know intense right off the bat of like you you know there there are positives to this like people are um i guess viewing or people are being becoming more aware and interested in birds and that regardless of how that happens that's a positive i think but and so i think we have to navigate carefully but there's a lot of precedent also for owls in Central Park not doing well and like, uh, mm-hmm. exercise, like as the, you both the, mentioned the is a big owl. issue yeah, yeah Barry the, the barred before. Owl berry, that's um, right. and we so good names. that nuance has to be captured and it's really like it's a media thing right like and mm-hmm. I've been I think more than anything I've been a little disappointed in a lot of the media around it has really not captured that nuance very well um, I thought Audubon's article was pretty good at capturing some of that. And that's not surprising because a lot of those writers are based in New York and understand, you know, that whole context. Um, But I've definitely seen a lot of like, and I get this narrative of like, you know, he's an escapee, like, let him be, let him be free. I get, it's like a visceral reaction, right? There's like a strong narrative there. I I hate
0: seeing birds of prey in zoos for that reason. Even if they're, even if they're birds that are injured and cannot be free, it's just, there's just something about it.
3: No, totally. Like, I get that point. But, um, you know, as Brody alluded to, there's just a lot of nuance here that I didn't feel like was captured a lot and how it was covered or how it's been being covered. Um, and then I also think there's like this other thing here of just like a misunderstanding of what zoos are and like, uh, yeah, you know, zoos actively mm-hmm. prevent extinctions like they are conservation and there are, you know, not all zoos are I won't even get into that, but yeah, zoos actively (laughs) present, uh, prevent extinctions. And that's a good thing. And, um, I don't think most people realize the extent of the work that zoos do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot here, a lot wrapped into one bird that happens to be in Central Park. Yeah.
1: Well, I feel like Miko and Brody have really covered the serious and important aspects of this story. So I will present my hot take. On perfect the Flacco situation. Yes, and that is I see an opportunity to solve a couple of problems <laughs> at once. So we've got the problem with uh, owls being, you know, pretty rare and therefore getting, <clears throat> excuse me, overwhelmed with photographers and mm-hmm. visitors. You know, this is a constant problem when owls show up. I mean, on our local list, we won't even share owl yeah. locations because owls just get overrun. Also, we've got all these problems that face owls like uh side and, you know, window crashing, things like that. So here's the plan. In every urban park, we just put an owl there <laughs> and then everybody has an owl. And so then one, the owls are a little more commonplace and people can be excited about them without everybody, everybody going to see the one owl. <laughs> and you've got your, you know your own personal flocko the owl in your city. <laughs> and two. so that dose. gives dose. everybody <laughs> something to rally around when yeah. it's time to make policy changes about rodent side or lead or, you know, lights out window reflectivity stuff. So, um, it I think all the urban parks and, you know, these birds are eating, like they're eating pigeons. They're eating rats. They're yeah. not, we're only talking about urban parks here. I'm not saying, you know, throw an eagle owl out in the old growth forest. Because <laughs> God knows the spotted owls have enough problems as know. it is. Yeah. But, you know, just in in every urban park, you get an owl. It's if you fun can get for the, the owls whole
0: to agree with that. I th- <laughs> to agree with that, I think be, you'd be pretty good. Um, we probably have barred owls in every urban park. Oh, I'm talking in the about southeast.
1: big, yeah, visible big owls. Owl. Okay, All right. Like e- maybe it's Erasional eagle owls. owls,
0: snowy owl, Blackiston's fish owl, maybe Pit- Pell's fishing owl. Yeah, something, <laughs> yeah. something <laughs> Wait, large, bros. I eagle mean. owl. <laughs>
1: Can we get some more eagle owls? Because those (laughs) ones seem to be really well-suited for the purpose. They do well,
0: yeah. Yeah, at least Flacco's used to
2: being stared at because, you know, that's all that's been happening his whole life. And now he's like, oh, 50 people photographing me? It's not going to stop me from eating that rat.
0: Slow day at Central Park Zoo. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) I
2: I like it. It, It'll be hard to, um, it'll be an interesting proposal, Sarah. We'll see how far it goes, but it's... um, Take out a nearby It's
3: a pilot pilot project.
1: <laughs> yeah, I it's just, a pilot project. <laughs>
2: I'm interested in like how
3: big does the park like New York has a lot of pocket parks. Like every yeah. park we are talking about? That's those are really right. like screech owl parks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we could get the the park, you know, match it with the an with the comparable the owl comparable size. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think
1: Oh, yeah. see? This is you guys Perfect. are really adding some Perfect. great <laughs> elements to my idea. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Well, I was wondering if it should be how we rehome all of the barred owls that have invaded the Pacific Northwest because that's another huge home. hot button issue. Bring yeah. them home. Is they're really yeah. culling barred owls.
0: Yeah, it's um, too many owls.
2: That's the opposite uh-huh. problem. Yeah, exactly.
1: Relocation program. <laughs> that's right. Everybody like gets a barred owl. <laughs> They'll eat anything. They and will. They will eat anything. That's they why don't they do even so well. <laughs> really care about people staring at them a lot no. of the time. So no. that's actually this is great. We'll and just like pale notes. male,
2: we can name every one of them Barry, and you know just go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> Barry and Flacco, we'll just alternate.
3: <laughs> there is um, there's a pair of nesting great horn owls on campus, like outside the wildlife building here on at Colorado oh, wow. State. Um, and so we named them Jolly and Sieber, which is like a very nerdy name because it's it's like a population modeling. Method basically, or like it's wow. two guys. Like, so like I like, did not get it, that. Am I missing something? <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> I, it's like a very nerdy thing that we did, but I'm so proud of it. I was, yeah, I'm, I'm I was a big proponent of naming them <laughs> Jolly and Seaver, so I'm happy that happened. That's nice. Thank you so
0: much to Sarah, Brody, and Miko for joining me once again for this March, um, March of this month in Birding. We had some some great conversations, some heavy topics, uh, but some fun too. Um, you can find all of these people on uh, social medias. I'd also have links to whatever sites that they would like me to link to. Please let me know if there's anything other than your social media that you would like that. Um, otherwise, uh, thank you so much. Have a great spring. It's coming. It's almost here. And uh, we'll, see you,
2: we'll see you next time. Thanks so much, y'all.
0: Yeah, thanks, thanks man. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the American Birding Association. You get a lot of great benefits, including magazines, discounts to partners like Beauty o Books, Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can find out how to do all of it at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Gwen Grace of Sun Lake, Arizona, Elizabeth Camus of Tucson, Arizona, Rajiv Jwahari of Austin, Texas, Joe Rivera and family of Sunnyvale, California, Thomas Rivas of Charleston, California. South Carolina, Stephen Time of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Nicholas Felleroso of Toronto, Ontario, all of whom recently joined the American Birding Association, noted this podcast as their reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Balmonte. Technical production is by John Lowry. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz. You can find us online at aba.org. On social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. I just want to note that both Flacco the Owl and Joe Flacco the Quarterback are Super Bowl champions, but only Flacco the Quarterback went to Audubon High School. That is some synchronicity. Questions? Comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next time.